With threats to our nation waiting around every corner, adaptability is more important than ever. When conditions change without notice, quick strategic thinking is crucial. And with obstacles consistently impending, determination is essential in overcoming them. It's this willingness, decisiveness, and resilience that sets Marines apart. With our fighting spirit, we don't just fight battles, we win them. Marines are the constant our nation counts on to fight the unknown. And through adaptable problem solving, we do just that. Learn more at Marines.com. This is the Athletic Football Show. Welcome, everybody, to Season 2, Episode 34 of the Football GM Podcast, right here on the Athletic Football Show every Saturday, not only during the NFL season, but during the real fun NFL season, which is the offseason, where we're at right now, a couple weeks before the draft. I am Mike Sandoz, Senior Writer for The Athletic, along with the General Manager. Good morning, Mr. Randy Mueller. Michael, how you doing, buddy? I'm doing well. I guess it's afternoon, whatever. Uh, it doesn't matter. But the, the team guys probably have no idea. They've been in a dark room probably for the last <laughs> week or two. What before we get into we're gonna we're gonna rank uh, Randy's running backs and tight ends in the draft today. We're gonna hit some other news and notes around the league, including the the latest on the lawsuit uh, with Brian Flores and the situation with the audio that came out of Mike Malarkey through the Titans process. We'll get to that. But um, Randy, you've been in the, what, 35 years in the league. So this time here, a couple weeks before the draft, um, what's everybody been doing? And I know we got pro days. We got what? What, what, what? what happens? Yeah, I think right now the pro days are starting to wind down a little bit. There are some teams that haven't got all the input of the pro days and really of their coaching staff either quite yet. I don't think, I think you've got to guard a little bit now against having too much time on your hands because you don't want to have a bunch of cards all of a sudden start moving rows and moving around on your draft board. That was always something that I was deathly yeah. against. We're not going to start moving people around all over the place now because one opinion got changed or one coach saw this. But you have to guard against that because sometimes the loudest voice in the room thinks they're right all the time. And that comes up probably between now and the draft more than any other time because everybody's in a little bit of a panic, right? They like their guys. They want to get their guys up. And I used to work for a group that one of their instructive values was it. And you tell me if you agree with this, Mike, I'm trying to get the verbiage, right? They said, um, you, you, it's your fault if you don't get your guys drafted. Wow. And that never made sense to me. It, it actually made the hair stand up on the back of my head because it's never about your scout or your area or anybody getting their guys drafted. That's the epitome of the opposite of what I wanted to do. And that used to fry me when I would hear that. I want to get it right. And usually the truth is in the middle. So I want to build consensus and hear everybody's point of view. I don't want a particular scout in an area that speaks the loudest to all of a sudden get all his guys drafted. That's not it He wants all all the Western region guys to get going. You're like, no, no, what if the guy from uh, Southwest Texas State is better? We want him, right? Yeah, that's exactly right. And that should be our goal. But it just goes to show how many different philosophies are at work around the league. Everybody sees the drafting process slightly different. And sometimes the differences are extreme. And and that used to frustrate the heck out of me sometimes because I'm always about the team and all of us being heard, not the not not the carnival barkers or the or the yeah. the salesman. You know, that's not part of it at all. I got a couple ones for you on that. So um we always hear, hey, this guy's climbing up draft boards, right? <laughs> uh translation, Mueller, what does that mean? Total BS. 
I mean, there's no way. <laughs> if they are, they're doing an injustice to their draft process and the whole last 12 months. If you let something like this happen, and we'll talk about a couple of these things because I know for a fact there are players, I've seen it, but I know from this year in particular, some players that were graded high by teams now have gone to a pro day that maybe was attended by a scout or a coach, it really doesn't matter, and didn't do well at his pro day. They didn't go to the combine or he went to the combine and didn't run. And then all of a sudden he runs at his pro day because he's a little healthier. But now we're going to ding this guy for everything he does at a pro day in shorts and t-shirts running around. That stuff used to drive me crazy as Uh well. So you, you have all kinds of philosophies. I I'm, I, if I really like a guy on tape and I have zero questions about him, I hope he goes and runs bad at his pro day. Because then everybody yeah. that's weak yeah. will 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 not pick him, and they'll they'll drop him down in their process. So there's a, just a lot of different mindsets, a lot of different philosophies, a lot of different com, uh, confidence levels, so to speak, and and that's part of well, I guess so, leading. But it's different for every team. So what if you need? Let's just say your your team needed a quarterback this year. Doesn't that? In fact, I was talking to a coach about this. That idea then. Do people then like bend what they think about the prospects to make it more palatable to draft a guy where you're at? Does that do you think that happens to where hey we're picking 14th we need a quarterback there's we don't really there's probably not one that we would grade that high but by the end of the thing dang it he was the highest guy on our board does that uh, happen 100% it happens all the time it really happens sometimes with I, I talked a little bit about what you got to guard against with scouts but you have to guard it against it with coaches too because coaches want their guys they want you to spend a second round pick on a tight end because that's their that's their Position. view of the world. You know, yeah. it's totally different. So you've got to you've got to watch. You've got to again evaluate the evaluators and take a step back from thirty thousand feet. And that's why I said, and you you asked me. I think when we initially said the difference between evaluators and team builders, there is a big difference because the team builder has that look from thirty thousand feet. The evaluators, and you see it all the time in in especially in the media world, where an evaluator looks at a specific player and, and just puts him where he thinks his value is off the chart. But that may not be valuable to the, the total team build. That may not, we may not draft him in a spot that makes sense, but that's okay. You've got to realize that we have a bigger cause than, than making your sequence list correct. If that makes you any don't sense. Have to, yeah, you don't have to say where you're at or disclose if you don't want to. But so what's an example of a player that suddenly showed up on the draft day and the guy was way higher than you thought? Or or do you remember anything like that with a specific player? Well, I don't know about specifics, but there was a time I spent with one organization where we as scouts or, or not the boss, let me just say that, we would <laughs> laugh when we'd come in the morning and the cards had been moved around. And we used to have a little saying, we'd say, well, I guess we had another all-star game last night, huh? Yeah. Because <laughs> there's no more film to watch. We've already evaluated everybody. So the scouts would laugh at each other and say, yeah, see, we had another uh, senior bowl last night or another blue-gray game or something like that. <laughs> so the cards got moved around and that just shows that, hey, we all notice, but yeah. there might be a valid reason for it too. So um, you've got yeah. to kind of take a step back as, as, as you see things through a worm's eye and understand that yeah. the decision makers see it through the bird's eye. Yep, absolutely. Well, let's launch into our continuing series. Last week, we talked about uh, the wide receivers and why you liked certain ones. I think Chris Olave was number one. You had the two Ohio State guys up there. People can check that out, um, obviously, on last week's podcast. We're going to do running backs and tight ends today. And I've, I've actually, I've got the list here of, of who you've got. Uh, but let's just start with a with with running backs, Randy. And I'll leave the floor to you. Um, 
what do you value in the position? And, yeah. you know, we hear a lot about running backs, frankly. Right. I mean, do, should you take one early? You know, right. no, they're, you should never pay one. Those are all things I guess we could get into if we wanted to. But for you, what's a great back? Yeah, I think you have to start with the criteria and what you're looking for. And, and I agree with those, those points that you've made come from different parts of your building, especially, you know, cap guys or, or other people that sure. chime in to say, hey, we can't ever give a running back that much value because we're not going to be able to afford him on a second contract and, and things like that. But my thinking is when you set the criteria for running back, you're looking for two things. You're either looking for a guy who can do everything and play on third downs and have explosive uh, explosive athleticism to allow you to score from anywhere, or you're looking for a skill set specifically that you get from a, another player that you fit in to the skills that you don't have on your team. So in other words, a spot player or a full-time player. That's the big delineation you have to make. And I think if you can, if you can divide them up into different buckets to start with, you have a chance to, to really uh, line them up in a valued way, which makes some sense to everybody. And yeah. And I would think for our purposes here, we're talking about the do it all guy. Cause we're, we're going to rank running backs. We're talking about somebody you would actually take earlier, right? You, right. you would you, in general, right? You would, we wouldn't take a spot back necessarily. Uh, if you're going to rank your top five running backs, there wouldn't ever be a spot back in there. Would there? No, there wouldn't, but there might only be one or two, three down backs. So gotcha. in a particular draft, and I think in this this particular draft here, we start to fill specific needs after about three guys. So yeah. it just happens to be that's the way it works. You're not going to find it. Here's the guys I've drafted. Amon Green, third down back, uh, first, second, and third down back, could do it all. Um, Deuce McAllister, first, second, third down back. You know, those are yep. guys that you know, can carry the mail. They can play on that passing downs. They can pass block. That's the criteria you look for. If you're going to draft one in the first round, there was one last year, uh, Najee, uh, Harris, right. With the Steelers, yeah, yeah. he yep. was only, only back. And some thought maybe he wasn't quite the third down back as, as was needed to be valued there. But I think he turned out to be pretty good in all three, all three downs and in both phases of the game. So for my money, the best one I saw this year for, for what I've seen, and I'm going to stress this, I'm not a scout, so I'm not unearthing guys at Western Colorado State like Kyle Eckler. I'm not. I'm just looking at the consensus from some of the people around the league to come up with six or seven names and then put them in order. So, gotcha. that's, so you looked at you looked at kind of the mainstream backs. Yes. That, yes. You know, so you, yeah. How, so like how many how many backs did you end up probably looking at? Oh, I think there's six or seven. You know, maybe there, there's eight or nine, but there's the bottom of that list. I don't. You know, I don't yeah, consider, yeah. I, I would consider these guys all in the first three rounds at some point. That's my opinion. Right. But, but to get this list, did you have to look at 20 or did you have to look at 10? Oh, I probably you... looked at 15. Yeah. Yeah. 15, probably yeah, twice as a... many to narrow it down to this. Yeah. So I'm very, go ahead and, un, un, go ahead and unveil your number one guy. Well, for my money, and it's funny because we went through receivers last week and there was two at the same school, right? Two Ohio State guys. Yeah. There's two running backs at Georgia this week that ended up being the, the two highest guys for me, both rotational guys because of how good they are and, and the skills that, this, that they have. The kid that I came out on top with the guys I looked at was Zamir White from Georgia. He's uh, uh, just under six foot tall. He's 215 pounds. He runs 4'4". Four, four. But here's the issue, and I'll talk about some of the specifics. He's going to have two ACL surgeries before he ever takes a snap in the NFL. So that's another thing that when we as outsiders look at tape and evaluate on film, we don't have the medical information. 
We don't have the character information that NFL teams do. So to get hot and bothered because they don't see them exactly like we do is a waste of oxygen because they have more information than us. Plus, there's eight or 10 opinions in every every scout's room, every team's room. So they can build a consensus. These evaluations that we're talking about are really a one-man show. It's just what I see on tape, which would be about you know a, a fifth of the information in a normal draft room. Now, that being said, you do know that he's had these ACLs, and yep. but we've seen, shoot, Frank Gore had a couple. Yep. I mean, shoot, he, he, I'm not Frank disregarding. Gore. I'm just saying you're going to have to check yeah. some boxes before you're okay with this. And what I noticed is, Randy, because I, I, I love to co- just compare how people see him. So I went through other, you know, just kind of the media general managers who are doing these things, you know, mm-hmm. whether it was Mel Kuyper or Dane Brugler at The Athletic or whatever. Uh, I don't see Zamir White in the top five. So I love that. So so let's talk a little bit more then about him and why him and who do you compare him to? I think the thing for me is I want to find, and this is in, in the criteria of what I'm looking for, I want to find a guy that gives me the feeling when he gets the ball in his hands that we might score. And that's a hard one to define uh, on paper. Um, I found it with Amon Green. I thought we had it with Deuce McAllister. Those kind of guys, when they get the ball, you kind of a little skip in your breath, you know, where you yeah. oops, he might go. He might not, but he might. And so yep. I felt like that when I watched Samir White. Um, you never know watching tape um, that this guy had two ACLs. He runs hard inside. He's got juice through the hole. Um, outside, he has speed to turn the corner. He just plays really fast and has a little top-end gear shift once he gets in the secondary. He can run away from tacklers. But the thing I really loved about him is his pad level in traffic. He has balance. He, he breaks arm tackles. He sets up arm tackles on, on instincts and vision. Um, and he makes people miss, both in line and in space. He's just a really hard guy for a single tackler to get on the ground. But the other thing that kind of set him apart for me is a really a good route runner. He can create separation, puts his foot in the ground. You know, he can he can run an angle route, which linebackers are always struggling to cover. But he finds it with the body control of kind of a receiver in that he can set him up to to gain this separation. And he's a willing and capable pass blocker as well. So every year. You know, you don't always find the guys that can contribute on passing downs, on running downs, you know, blocking, catching. I thought his hands were excellent. Um, He just gave me that feeling that he might be able to score a touchdown every time he got the ball. So I had him at the top. Yep. And you had James Cook next, his teammate, ahead of Iowa State, Brees Hall, who is who may be one or two on a lot of theater lists that I've seen. So why, why, why Cook ahead of him and why Cook not quite as high as his teammate. I think Cook, for me, and it's a different style, and that's probably why Kirby Smart at Georgia played both these guys and rotated, and they're different styles. Cook, for me, is a more upright runner, um, and he was the senior there. So, I mean, we've all been around programs where seniors get rewarded for being there and playing, you know, and and so this this guy probably played a lot because he had been there and paid his dues, but a totally different style. This guy's a kind of a one-cut slasher. He runs a little bit upright, um, not really powerful behind his pads like White was, but he's very nifty-footed, and he has a north-south acceleration to him that kind of reminded me a little bit of Deuce McAllister, a little bit of an upright runner, like I said, but that's going to cost him uh, Run. He's not a downhill guy between the tackles. So um, the best thing that 
James Cook did for me was he in the passing game, he caught the ball and made people miss. He can get upfield. He ran away from defenders after he has the ball in his hands. So I like the way he catches the ball. He's got soft hands. He can catch balls that aren't specifically on target. Um, so I thought there's a chance that this kid could be an every down back. He carried the ball a lot and has a lot of production um, in both the passing game and the running game. So he runs 4-4-5. I didn't think he was the style that I, I maybe uh, seek, but I think someone will see him a little bit like they saw Najee Harris in, in, yeah. in Pittsburgh last year. So Brees Hall was my third guy. And this was fascinating for me. So I, I looked at the tape before I looked up anything else on Brees Hall, did any investigating or anything. So I saw a guy who has run a lot, of, has, has been run a lot. They, they ride him. Yep. He's an yep. every down back at Iowa State. He's a downhill workhorse volume type carrier. Um, but the one thing he's not from my money, he's not explosive on the field. He just, he, he's a, he's a traditional body lean pad level guy that breaks some arm tackles, but he kind of picks and slides with some natural vision. He just doesn't run away from anybody or make you say, wow, he's going to go. He just, he's not like that. He's going to grind out some yards, grind it out. But, and then I went back after I looked at the tape and looked at the numbers that he tested. He tested to a 40 time of four, three, eight. He <laughs> had a 40 inch vertical jump. These wow. are explosive yeah. numbers, right? Yeah. But I just never saw that equate on film. So that that's a that's a hard one for scouts. It's a hard one for evaluators. I always err on the side of what I saw on film. So I'm going to take that over a workout, or I'm going to take that over these numbers that we all run around the spring and try to collect. So I just didn't see that same explosive timed uh, workout stuff when I saw him on, on tape. Now he had 36 catches. He ran the ball 253 times. I mean, this guy's he's used in every single way at Iowa state, but I just saw him more as a grinder who lacked any big playability. And, uh, I was worried about him bringing anything to the table other than just being a ball carrier, you know, so nothing really jumped out at me about this kid. Yes. Yeah, so, and let, let's just, as we reset this and we have Zamir white, we have James Cook, we have Brees Hall. Uh, in your mind, and again, just off the film you've watched, not the full investigation you would do if you were an organization, but do you have a feel for you know wh- how you would grade them or what round or is there any sort of a reference point we could put on these guys to say how much you like them in the context of an entire draft, not just in the context of each other? Yeah, I think it's a comfort level for me, and I can't speak for other teams. I can only state my comfort zone where I would feel comfortable with him. And I don't think I could feel comfortable taking Brees in the first round. There's just not enough juice there. There's not enough big playability there. So I think he's probably, for me, more of a second or third round type back. I'd have no problem with the first kid from Georgia, Zamir White, because I see the speed. I see the explosiveness. I see a three down back. And some of the skill sets that I'm describing obviously determine the value of when you would take a guy. You you started the conversation by saying we're not going to take spot players probably through the first three rounds. Right. So so I think all three of these guys are more than spot players. So I would consider them in the first three rounds for sure and in the order that that I've mentioned. The other thing you gotta you gotta set up is the schemes that they're going into, the the criteria and the scheme specific fits of certain backs are going to make them more valuable to some teams than others. 
Yep. Now you have Brian Robinson number four on your list, and and I don't see him in the top fives of some of these, uh, you know, other ones in media. So why do you like him? Uh, and how much do you really like him? Well, I like him, but the, here's the point: I have a four, fourth round grade on him. So that's okay. how quick the the backs disappeared for me. Gotcha. You know? um, and and they disappear because they're one trick ponies or they're undersized, or they don't play with any speed and explosion. So there's just not that many guys. But I think that's every year the error of, and it's not really an error, the difference is in media projections and NFL inside building projections are there's a lot less players in NFL eyes than there are in, and I'll use Mel for an example or Todd yeah, or any sure. of these other guys. There's not that many players. So they tend to err on the side of there's, you know, might be 10 running backs this year. Well, really, in the NFL setup, there might be four on any given year, if that makes any sense. Right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So you had Robinson next. I thought he's similar to Cook. He's just a little slower uh, afoot. Um, he's a bit of a slasher. I worry a little bit about these slashers when I say they can make one cut and then hit yep. the hole. And if they run upright, I worry about their durability because that's a big target. They, they've given their exposure to their chest and their hip area to defenders to really knock them back. So I worry yep. about their yep. durability because they're going to take some hits because yep. they're not running behind their pads. And Brian Robinson's a little bit like that. He's got really good north-south acceleration. He's slightly straight line though, but he has good feet as a route runner. He catches, he'll block. Uh, he's just not dynamic. And if I'm going to pick a guy high as a running back, he better have some dynamic skill sets that, like I said, it's not only going to keep him on the field for three downs, but he's got to be able to bring something to the table where we're going to have some long runs and and we're going to score from way out if we're going to have this guy on the field on third downs. So you have two guys at number five, Kenneth Walker, Michigan State, Jerry and Ely, uh, Ole Miss. And Walker's, I've seen him listed one or two uh, in other people's lists. Why five? And if you had a fourth round grade on Brian Robinson, you must have... Kenneth Walker lowered than that, right? Yeah, right in the same range. I would have them both yeah. in the third round, for, late third, early fourth. Um, I think the deal with Walker is he was talked about early on as a Heisman candidate, played at Michigan State. I hate to say it, but they get a lot of press, right? They get People yeah. have known about him forever. Um, he's a small guy for me, 5'9". I struggle with him. Yeah, he's 210 pounds, but he's a smallish guy who, who would rather bounce outside than run inside. Um, he has quickness. He evades people. He's also got speed to turn a corner and run away, run away from people. And that suddenness and bounce laterally make tackles miss him. Um, I, I like his speed. Uh, I just think he's going to be, his vision's a little inconsistent between the tackles and he's a little short so he can hide, but I just don't see him as an every down guy because of that. His running style isn't isn't one that you'd say, we can give this guy the ball, you know, 25 times. He kind of reminded me of, I don't know if you remember Javid Best from Cal a couple years back. Uh, That's kind of his style for me. Um, He can really make sharp cuts in the secondary once he gets in the secondary. Um, But as a smaller guy, I just didn't think he would be a full-time ball carrier at our league. Kind of reminded me of, like I said, uh, Javid Best, maybe even, you know, a little bit like Clyde Edwards-Hilaire, you know, his lower body, Hilaire, sets him apart, and, and I didn't see that with Kenneth Walker. The guy I, I, I put alongside of him uh, is the old Miss kid, and, and you, you mentioned it, uh, Jerion yeah. Ely. Yeah. And again, I, I'm a, maybe I'm a sucker for this, <laughs> but when I see a guy that's faster than everybody else and plays faster on tape, 
I tend to put those guys higher on the list, regardless of how he measures and what he does. And this kid played really fast to me. I think his 40 time was 4-5-2 or something like that. But when I watch Old Miss tape, and I watch a lot of it because I was watching Matt Corral as well, this guy seemed like the fastest guy in the field to me. They would give him the ball in one back sets and he would make people miss. He'd make runs out of, out of, out of nothing. Um, he can catch. He was a hard guy to really bring down. And in his case, he really was sudden and elusive. So I liked him probably a little more than Walker, but I could see either one of these guys being spot players. Um, I think they're both going to struggle because the best thing they do would be, you'd say, oh, he's a third down back. There's no third down back that can't, that, that, unless he can block. And there's both so small that pass protection is, is going to be the biggest thing they have to overcome. That really determines how early rookie running backs get on the field is how they can handle pass protections and how they can hold up against most of the time, bigger blitzing linebackers. So that's going to be a struggle for those two guys. Before we hit the tight ends, you, you, we mentioned that you drafted Amon Green in Seattle. Was there a story of the drafting him? Was it easy? Was it easy? Did you guys argue? Did somebody want somebody else? Uh, or did it just float with the highest guy on the board and it was straightforward? No, it was actually piecing together a bunch of stuff because at Nebraska, and that's where he played, they didn't throw the ball much. And, and they didn't throw it to backs at all. And and we could see the speed. We could see the explosion. It's almost like they ran a little version of the veer. So he was yeah. always running outside, you know, and catching pitches and running around the corner. But we really didn't know if he could catch. And our running back coach at the time, Dennis was Dennis Erickson was the head coach, but we sent Tim Lapano, our running back coach, to yeah. Nebraska just to work him out and find out if he could catch. And he passed it. We videoed it. We all came back and said, wow, he, this guy's no problem catching the ball. In fact, he's got really good hands. But we kind of had to piece it together. But having said that, we got him in the third round. And I, to this day, think he lasted that long because not everybody else had the same confidence level in his ability to catch and run routes as we did. So it ended up, you know, he's the, I hate to say this, but I think he's still the leading rusher in the history of the Green Bay Packers, the franchise. That's unbelievable. Yeah. I think he is too. I mean, they have yeah. a little history I mean, there last okay. time I checked. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, he should have been in Seattle, except uh, a certain coach came in and wanted someone else. That's a different story for another day. Let me let me just tell you one thing about that, and this isn't uh, to make fun of anything, but when I went to New Orleans after Amon's first year, first or second year, I think he had yeah. been in the league two years, and I went to New Orleans as their GM, so I left, obviously, and Mike Holman yeah. was the Seahawks coach. And I knew that Mike was kind of lukewarm on him because he used to fumble a little bit. He'd fumble a yeah, kickoff he did early there. Yeah. yeah. And so, and because Mike always used to complain, hey, can you get him to hang on to the ball? He would make fun One of me fumble because with a he coach was Mike like Holmgren. That's yeah. it. It's oh, fatal. Yeah, that was a death fatal. sentence. Yeah, yeah, yeah death yeah. sentence. Yeah. So when I got there, I kind of had the feeling that he might be on the move at some point. So I remember uh, talking with Mike and, uh, and saying, Mike, if you ever decide you want to move this guy, you know, he said, yeah, yeah, me. yeah, I'll call you, I'll call you, I'll call you. Like three weeks later, I read on the internet or something that they trade him to Green Bay as part of, I was um, sick, I was physically sick to my stomach when I read that, that we didn't get him. And guess what? We ended up drafting Deuce McAllister like three months later in the draft. So because if, uh, but if you would have acquired Armand, you probably don't pick Deuce McAllister, No, we'd have had no need to pick him. We already had Ricky Williams. People what, already thought I was crazy explain? enough. Did Holmgren ever explain why never he talked didn't to give him you about a crack? It. No, I never talked to him about it. But I, I don't know. Maybe it was part of some other deal. You know, obviously he came from Green Bay, so he had re- relations there, and I understand that. But Those I was sick things, to my stomach. Yeah. yeah. 
those coach things about a fumble or thing. I remember Holmgren used to tell a story that like Bill Walsh never did the shotgun because they used it one time and it, it, it was a bad snap. And I'm like, wait a minute, you're gonna that's gonna be enough for you to throw out an entire component of. Uh, and it probably wasn't just that simple, but it could be for the coach that just hold on to the dang ball or or whatever. So those are our our uh, running backs to, right. to recap: Zamir White, James Cook, Brees Hall, Brian Robinson. Then a tie, Kenneth Walker, and then the uh, the surprise from Ole Miss, Jerry and Ely. Looking for an assist with your credit card, but can't get a hold of anyone? Luckily, with 24-7 U.S.-based live customer service from Discover, everyone has the option to talk to a real person anytime, day or night. Yep, you heard that right. You can talk to a real human and customer service at any time. Sounds like a real game changer if you ask us. Make the right call and get the service you deserve with Discover. Limitations apply. See terms at discover.com slash credit card. Building a portfolio with Fidelity Basket Portfolios is kind of like making a sandwich. It's as simple as picking your stocks and ETFs, sort of like your meats and other topics, and managing it as one big juicy investment. That's pretty good. Learn more at fidelity.com slash baskets. Investing involves risk, including risk of loss. Fidelity Brokerage Services, LLC. Member NYSC SIPC. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Let's get into tight ends, and it's funny, you know, when I first started covering the NFL, tight end was an offensive tackle. They were 280 pounds. So you look at guys like Orson Mobley or, you know, yeah. big men, um, and now uh, they're much closer to being a wide receiver. So the game right. has changed, Randy. When you are looking for a tight end, you, we talked about two different categories of backs, you know, yep. the, the every-down guy. Uh, how do you? There's certainly more than one position of a tight end too. With whether you're a Y tight end or yeah. you know this that. So, when you look at the tight ends, just give us a little big picture of what you're looking for. How do you differentiate? Are there even? There probably aren't that many old-fashioned tight ends. No, there's not, and and that's a big, that's a big criteria change from the past. Is that we always wanted a guy that could block as well. Nowadays, they're really looking for a big receiver. That's what they're looking for, and it's really become a matchup position. There's still a little, a little disagreement with how to value tight ends in the draft because they are still tight ends. And are you better off spending it on a receiver that can, you know, play every down and do kind of crazy things for you from long range? Or do you want to get a, a tight end? And, and it's hard to argue because really tight ends have always been a position where you got to scheme them to get them open. And that's become the criteria for me over the years is you have tight ends who can get open because of the scheme 
And then you have tight ends that can get open because of their athleticism and their feet and, and ability to separate. So there's two different Great categories. distinction. Great distinction because that, that plays into then how much you can value them. I always wondered yes. that. Like like last year, Kyle Pitts went really high, unusually high for a tight end top five. Yep. In the back of your mind, if you were, let's say, valuing him, you were going to have a meeting for, geez, do we franchise this guy? Do How much do we pay him? Is he or are there tight ends that you would almost pay like a wide receiver or no? Yeah, I think there are. I think he's one of them. He, he could not only get open on his own, he didn't need a schemed offense to, to be effective. He, he was open even when he was covered. And okay. there are guys that at the top of their game, you know, Tony Gonzalez, Kelsey, you know, the Kittle, those guys are open even when they're covered. I'm probably, you know, uh, overthinking it a little bit, but those kind of guys are valuable. Very few of those guys were top picks either. So they kind of develop into that. But yeah, the criteria is different, different running attacks, running games. But now here's the problem. It's not a problem, but most places now it's about fit. So you might have two or three tight ends. So you may take a certain tight end out on first down, you know, and allow a, a, a more bigger, more physical, you know, but that gives away some of your deception as well. So I think the big thing is if you if your offense can can focus and can use a tight end as a focal point, it's probably worth a top pick. If it's not, and that in, in most of the past teams I've been with, I mean, I was with Antonio Gates, and, and he was a difference maker, obviously. Oh, yeah. But before that, I was really never with a team that had a tight end that was a difference maker. So they were always kind of just plug-in, fill-in guys. So I would have said for the first 20 years in the league, for me, I would have said, no way, we're not going to take a tight end up there. I don't care how good he is. But offenses have changed. You know, it's become a seven-on-seven seven really game for, for the most part. So these, these tight I, you know, ends And I apologies. All due respect to Mike Tyson, Christian Fourier. I mean, <laughs> you know, but uh, uh, yeah. Mike Tyson, it, Christian Fourier, and Pete Metzlars and all those guys would tell you they're blockers first. Trust me. <laughs> That's right. I think oh, this well, group, yeah, go ahead. Tyson was a quarterback first, but yes, yeah, no, yeah, anyway. True. Yeah. I would be interested to, to to see, and I didn't really look at a whole bunch of other people's lists when it came to tight ends, because I think the consensus is around the league and around different other platforms that evaluate players is that there is no consensus. I see names jumping all over the place, and that could be because different people value them different, different people fit them in different with their schemes. You know, I, I'm going to say that there's a kid that I really liked, and I don't know that I would take any of these tight ends in the first round that I saw. So you're probably starting, and it was like this for years, where your best centers, your best tight ends, yeah. they started to fall top of the second round. Yep. You know, and, and that's where I start with this group is they're probably top of the second round guys. I saw a kid from Coastal Carolina that's 6'4 245. He ran 4'5'5 five, five at some point, but he's another one where I looked at the tape. And I thought, this kid can run well. He separates well. He's a big kid. His name's Isaiah Likely. Um, he's yep. got, he's got uh, what's the word I'm looking for? He's got body control to get in and out of breaks like a little man, but he's a big man. 6'5", 245. Yeah. Yeah. He's explosive with his feet under him to separate instantly on in-line, in, in tight, tight, tight area routes, almost like a receiver. And, yeah. Who's and he remind he, you of? Um, Kittle. He reminds me of Kittle. Yeah, that kind of speed, that kind of... But here's the catch. This kid ran in his pro day. He didn't run at the combine, but he went to his pro day and ran 4.8. So now what do you do with him, Mike? You've got 
a really high grade and a good report on him and a good feel from watching film. And your scout or your tight end coach comes back to you and said, this guy ran four, eight. We can't draft this guy. He can't run. What well, are you going to do? You, you answer I know that. The, I know the Seahawks just held a media combine and, and Mike Dugar, who covers the Seahawks for the athletic ran a four, eight, five at it. So <laughs> you got to have your tight end that if you're going to draft him, he's got to run faster than the beat guy. I think that's a, a good rule. Don't you? It is. But that beat guy is not going to show up on tape like this guy did. No, I promise no, you. I'm kidding. I'm kidding. <laughs> yeah, no, yeah, no, so I, know you're I don't kidding. know. What, well, what did George Kittle run? I don't know. You know? That's a good question. I do not you, know. You know, and and I, I guess at a certain point, something like that can be a deal breaker for you if you're talking about how high you are in the draft. At a certain right. point, is it, that, is it as big of a deal? Uh, I had zero question about his speed until I heard someone say he ran 4.8 at his pro day. Yeah. Zero question. I, I've watched multiple films on this guy. I've watched all his catches. I had zero question about his speed. He had a 99-yard receiving touchdown in a Division I football game on a little seam route. 99 yards. If he runs 4-8, someone ought to caught him, right? Someone on defense should have caught him. Well, you can go test him again and have him run or something, right? Wouldn't Was it a bad day or is that just... I, I, I got the workout and I watched it on film, the workout at his school. And yeah. I saw a, a quirky start in that his body moved before his hand moved. He had three or four false starts. And I'm thinking, uh, maybe this guy is just a tough guy to get a good watch on. And again, I'm maybe in my mind, I'm trying to make excuses because I know he's a good player and I want him. You know, one of the things that I've done with receivers coaches just messing around, um, you know, you, you can time how long it takes a guy to get to a certain depth on a route, you know, if it's mm-hmm. the same route. And it was, it's really fun to do because what, what we were doing is we were, we were watching like Michael Irvin and Tory Holt and these guys running certain routes and seeing how long it takes them to get 19 yards and turn mm-hmm. this way or whatever. Mm-hmm. Um, couldn't you do that type of a thing with uh, Isaiah Life? He's going to run three different routes, right? 20 times each or 10 times each. Couldn't you time it on the film and just say, oh, you know what? He's right in the way. He's just with everybody else. He's fine. Or no. You can, yes. And I think that's done uh, regularly. They split this guy out and he's lined up next to a receiver who's, he's in the slot. So he's a, a step behind the receiver who's on the line of scrimmage. And at five yards, they're even. So yeah. that tells yeah. me he comes off the ball like, like he shot out of a cannon for a big man. You forget how big he is when you watch him run. But for some reason on that day, yeah. his time yeah. speed was not good. So you got to make well, a decision. We Yeah, and we always hear people say, ah, oh, the 40 times overrated, you got to watch the film. Well, this here's your extreme test, right, to see if you're willing to do that. But I, I would have a hard time throwing out the fact that he played football really well and ran for 99 yards in a game and no one caught him. I agree. Um, shoot, what was Jerry Rice's 40 time or whatever, you know? Um, yeah. It comes down to the decision makers and and I think how confident they are in the draft room. I too would say the same thing. I'd say, forget it. I don't care about this. I know he can run fast. I don't have any doubt, but I know teams that will, you know, won't consider him till round four or five because they don't want to tie it in their times at four, eight. Okay. Mueller, then what's your grade? How early would you be okay taking him um, in a draft in just a, a regular draft? I had him at the top of the second round. Yeah, I really did. I think, um, he's a guy that, makes all the contested catches. He's got really long arms so he can adjust and catch outside his frame. I just think he's going to be, when he walks off the bus, the quarterback's favorite target. I think he's going to find him. He has some instincts to where he really settles in and out of breaks. He settles in zone spaces, um, things that are really hard to coach. And not only that, I just think his body control and, and his 
athleticism has upside once he gets to the NFL level. I think the details that he learns his first week on the job in the NFL are going to take him to the next level. So you've got to kind of be a, a little forecaster too of, of, you know, upside and of skill sets and how good they can be. And I just had a real good feeling about this kid when I saw him. The second guy for me is Trey McBride from Colorado state, total different style, six, three and a half, two forty six. Uh, a quickness, uh, uh, a guy more built like an H-back, maybe a fullback type, um, catches really confidently, plucks the ball. Um, not quite. One thing I neglected to say about likely is that for a big man, he's a really good blocker on the perimeter and second level. He stays after defenders and covers up smaller guys in the running game. So he's not a one-dimensional guy. He can be a really good blocker, especially off uh, off the line of scrimmage. Um, I struggled a little bit with McBride in that regard. Um, more of a, more of a catcher will body catch some, but he's a tough kid. They split him out. They do a lot of things with him. I'm trying to think of a comp for him, um, where he, he, he can do so many things. Um, he's almost like the big fullback from the Ravens and Kyle Juszczyk from, from the 49ers, but he's an inch taller, you know? So they yeah. could do a lot of things like that with him, in my opinion. Um, he's going to run four five five, fast enough, but he's not going to run away from people. The reason yeah. I ranked him behind likely is the the uh, arm length and the catch radius. Likely yeah. catches way away from his body with longer arms. This yep. kid will let it come to him and get inside his frame. And against NFL defenders, they're going to reach around you and knock that ball away if you don't have extended out to catch it. And you can't let him come to your body. It just... Those catches won't happen. So does he need to win different types of matchups? I think in, in this case, he's a little bit more of a matchup guy um, at different times based on scheme. I don't have yep. the full confidence that this guy can get open on his own all the time like I do with Likely. I think this guy can get open, but he's going to need some schemes to help him as well. I felt, yep. I felt like he's going to run a route. He is in McBride. He's going to run a route just like it is on the card. In other words, if you write, everybody runs card routes for the for the defense in practice. He's going to run it exactly like it's coached. But if something comes up, seldom does it ever go like it's on the card, and you got to adjust. Got to adjust. I don't know how McBride would do having to adjust things all the time. I just think that the bigger, longer, uh, bigger target likely would be a better option for you when when shit goes south. That's all. If that makes yeah. sense. Yep. Absolutely. So I like McBride the second. Uh, the third guy for me was the UCLA guy, Greg Dulcich, 6'4", 243. But he's a one-speed guy. The system kind of has to get him open. He runs 4'7", but he's got some quickness. Um, a little tight as an athlete for me. Good feel versus zones. A um, little high at his breaking points. But he catches everything. Um, he's going to be a dependable you know, for me, a third round type guy, a dependable option at tight end, but never going to be a high end big playmaker. Uh, and I consider these guys, who's the tight end from Cincinnati that just signed with somebody else? He got hurt. Was it like Azuma? Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. He went to the Jets, right? Yeah. that's This guy's kind of like him. He's going to have to get schemed open a lot. Yes. The so other you've guy got, for- yeah, you've got him third then. Yes. Uh, you've got him third and then you've got Woods fourth, is that yes. right? Yeah, and I, and I think I only looked at four of them, to be honest. Yeah, yeah. I looked at a bunch, but I only came back with four. Jelani Woods was intriguing to me because you're talking about a six, seven, two hundred and fifty 
255 pound basketball player looking dude now. You talk about yeah. long. He is a, a, a runs four six. He's kind of a one speed, longer striding guy, but all of a sudden he's on you and by you. I think he's going to be a nightmare on third downs and in the, in the, in the red zone. Um, He's got good body control. He can get in and out of his breaks at times. I just don't know that there's a big body of work with him. I don't think football is is been in his background his whole life. So he probably has more upside because of it. But they're gonna have to learn he's gonna have to learn a little bit about playing the position still. But that big target and hands that are adequate, um Again, Philip Rivers would take all these guys he can get. Philip's a big guy at 6'5. He said, I want to throw to other big guys. So 6'5 to 6'7, that's something that some quarterbacks, you know, really, they don't have to look for them when there's traffic and there's always traffic over the middle. These guys kind of open themselves up. And again, like the guys we talked about before, they catch when they're covered and they're open when they're covered. So they're still going to have to make you know, catches and the ball still going to be, they're going to be targeted even when they're, when they yep. are covered. Yep. So um, yep. I like those guys for the most part. I wouldn't say that any of them are game breaking type difference makers. I think likely can be at some point, but that's a shot in the dark too, because there's, you know, there, there's that speed thing that I don't see on tape, but I see um, yeah. in the workout. So I don't yeah, know what you, you think of that yeah. group. And you mentioned you mentioned a little bit of a Kittle comp. Now Kittle mauls people in the run game too. Were you talking mostly just as a receiver, or do you see for similarities? Yeah, or for, for likely, for likely, you'd mentioned um, him. I think likely is going to be a really good inline blocker. Okay. I think he could become Kittle. He's already a really good perimeter blocker and a second level blocker because yeah. he he's willing, he's competitive, he's tough. They just don't use him as that. So at Coastal Carolina, so there's a leap of faith there. Yeah. No, it's a good group. It's a good group. Yeah. It's it's indicative that we we're going to do a top five tight ends and we came up with four. That's yeah. sort of how it is. And that's what you're For talking this about. Year, you, yeah. you could stretch it out to 10, but let's not imply yeah. that there's 10, right? Right. I agree. So, okay. Before we wrap up here, let's hit the big news of the week as everyone's in their draft rooms is really in the courtroom uh, <laughs> with uh, Brian Flory's former Dolphins head coach has amended his lawsuit against the, the NFL, and we want to talk about this because hire—it's—it's it's hiring. It's, it's this is interesting stuff, and clearly the processes need to improve. But he has amended his lawsuit against the NFL, and his efforts have been joined by Steve Wilkes and Ray Horton with some new and specific allegations. The coaches are basically alleging violations of federal and state civil rights statutes. Because my old friend from ESPN, Kevin Seifert pointed out they can ultimately try to prove one or t- one of two things. And we're not going to dwell too much on the legal because we're not lawyers, but yeah. they can try to prove disparate treatment, which requires proof of intentional discrimination, or they can try to prove disparate impact, which requires proof that a policy impacts minorities differently than it applies to others. Now, like I said, not an attorney. I don't know the, the, the legal strategies, but I think I do want to discuss, Randy, especially since you've been in the GM chair where you hire coaches or are involved in hiring coaches. I do want to talk about minority hiring in the NFL, um, separate from just hiring in general, um, especially as we've seen recently where there's been not only these types of allegations, but uh, a time where there's only one or two black coaches in the league at a time, and it's gotten a lot of attention. And really, for me, the question is whether the teams take the minority hiring seriously enough to legitimately prioritize it in the hiring process through the Rooney rule, or if that rule is, which we've seen at times, just a box that has to be checked and procedurally you need to interview X number of people and 
then we can really go do what we were going to do anyway. And so I want to set aside some aspects of this lawsuit that I find distracting from that. And that is whether Steve Wilkes was a bridge coach, whether he wanted Josh Allen instead of Josh Rosen, whether the GM was doing his job. To me, those are all things that, as you know, anyone could face. I mean, you've negotiated contracts from an elementary school parking lot two states away from the team (laughs) facility because your owner was trying to move the team. A lot of these jobs have things in them that make it hard. I think we need to focus on the hiring process itself. And the thing that was interesting to me that was different than what I've seen before in these types of things is that audio recording of Mike Malarkey, which I never saw that from 2020. Mm -hmm. Uh, But all of a sudden it comes out and Mike Malarkey basically says this. He was hired by the Titans in 2016. He had been the interim coach there, and they had fired Ken Wisdom, and then they made him the head coach. And he basically said this. I allowed myself at one point when I was in Tennessee to get caught up in something I regret. I still regret it. The ownership there, Amy Adams Strunk and her family, came in and told me I was going to be the head coach in 2016 before they went through the Rooney Rule. And so I sat there knowing I was the head coach. And they went through this fake process, knowing a lot of the coaches. He said, I I knew a lot of the coaches they were interviewing, know how much they prepared, knowing everything they could do, they had no chance to get the job. He's the GM there, John Robinson. He was in the interview with me. He had no idea why he's even interviewing me because I had the job already. He basically said he regretted it. To me, Randy, this is the reason I say this is different is we just never had that type of specifics about a specific hire. We don't really get get behind the curtain in that specific way. Um, What I wanted to ask you was, I think in these hiring processes, we know that human nature is to fall in love with a candidate. Even sometimes when you fire a candidate, you probably have a list of some people that you might want to hire. And while that can create a comfortable fit or a good fit, it can also exclude a lot of people and, and really run roughshod over the, the Rooney rule and and the process to get the best coach. And I wanted to ask you like what, as you kind of look at this, and I think we have transitioned to now where there's more attention on the, on the hiring uh, and whether they're following the rules because they have to, or because it's in their heart. What are some things that could be done to improve that process and make sure it's not, kind of what malarkey described right well a couple things come to my mind i've always said that we need to spend more effort and energy on the process before it ever gets to the rooney rule box in other words i always think it's about relationships and we talked about it i think on the podcast earlier this year where i would love to see the league go back and come up with some kind of not only process but some kind of a program where you can hook up potential especially minority coaches with GMs, with ownership. And everybody says, oh, they've done that for years. Well, they've done it in a formal setting at some fancy resort. I'm talking about informally around a campfire or playing golf or fishing or something crazy like that where you can actually build relationships, right? And not be encumbered by the boss always being there. So I've always thought we've done a bad job of of really just culturing relationships. So that's one thing. The other thing is, 
Teams now have a director of inclusion and diversity. Every team has one. They all did it a year or two ago and have that person on staff. You probably should include them in this process just for the sake of getting the process uh, to be a disciplined and structured uh, f- uh, format. And if if we were to believe, and, and I know Mike Malarkey personally, he's a man of his integrity. Uh, uh, I don't doubt anything he said. But now this has come to light. This clearly was a was a was a fact that they had hired a guy before they even went through the process. You just can't have that. So that's got to be, you know, addressed. Whether it ends up being part of a lawsuit or not, I don't know. That's way above my pay grade. But you just can't have this type of thinking if we're going to make progress. So I think from from the standpoint of the Rooney Rule, maybe we've outlived it a little bit. I wish they'd they'd push it back to where they'd start this relationship culturing earlier. But at the same time, we have people in place in offices now in the NFL. That's just a sh- new thing too in the last It is a years. new thing. Yeah, just come in the last year or two that this ought to be able to help the process, help and make sure that we don't say things like this, that you don't allow things decisions to get made without the process having been thorough and, and for it, the process to actually go through like the calendar says it should. So I think there's, there are a couple things in, in, in place. We've just got to make a, make an effort to institute them and then follow them and police them. And I think, I think one of the things that's really helpful um, is knowing who's on the search committees and all of that and having that be above board and, and public. And I think mm-hmm. a, a director of diversity and inclusion is going to, of course, have that. But to, like, to me, it was, it's been very helpful to know. You can almost predict who's going to get hired sometimes or who's not going to get hired yep. when you see who it is that's on those committees. And we've, yep. like, we talked about the Minnesota one, you know, where, um, you know, there were people from the previous personnel staff on it, the the salary cap persons on it. There's all these different people who just through human nature are going to want, they're going to want to not want certain people to be hired. And I think the more that we can know about that, the more that we can then analyze it, the more we can ask questions about it, the more it can just be known, then we can have a better feel for why certain people are hired and we can evaluate it and, and criticize it when it needs to be criticized as opposed to the mystery black box here where, yeah. uh, geez, I don't know why they hired this guy. I guess he knew the, this person, right? Um, that sort well, of thing. Yeah. You've got to, you've got to find a way and I'm not sure I have the answer for it, but you've got to find a way to make the process pure. It has to be pure. It has to be reasonable and, and it has to be, um, non-agenda affected. And you said it, there's a lot of these hiring processes that I, I can tell even uh, from just the people already in the building, what kind of person is going to get the job just because of the kingdoms and the walls and the fences that are built in certain organizations. And so you're not going to hire a certain type of person or maybe a, a certain knowledge level of person because there are people trying to protect their own backside. But a lot of that comes from ownership. And and I always, I've been involved in several of these hires of coaches. And I will say this, in every one of the ones I was involved in, I feared the owner. I feared the boss. So I wanted this to be a legitimate search and it had to be backed up by a solid disciplined process and gather the information like you would uh, I- having no idea who you're going to hire, whether you had a hunch in the back of your head or not. But I just think that that is between the GM and the head coach. I mean, the GM and the owner. And you've got to have that respect factor. And that owner's got to lean on you because they are the leader of this process at the end of the day. Nobody's getting hired without their stamp. 
So I just think that's where it kind of falls and it falls on owners and leaders and GMs to, to make sure the process is pure and don't let the agendas of other people in the building even get involved. And the, the owners are sensitive to criticism. You always wonder what, what can, what can influence an owner? Well, they do get, they do read. (laughs) They do care how they're perceived, listen to all that stuff. They really do. So I think the more that we can analyze these processes too and, and, uh, criticize them when they need to be criticized or you know point out situations of what are you doing um, is helpful but clearly there has to be processes within the building to make sure that doesn't happen and i think actually the actually this coming out is a positive thing um on on that tennessee situation uh because of the awareness and because of the focus it's puts on the process and i feel like we're getting more and more focus and process and light being shined on these hires every year uh and to me, it just can't be tainted. Really this this shows an, yeah. an example yeah. of a process that was tainted, and it yep. just can't be that way. It should never yeah. be that way. But yeah. absolutely, and we'll see what comes of it. Yeah. Uh, at a league level, the league basically hadn't wasn't aware of this interview with Mark either, and we'll see what comes out the rest of this uh, lawsuit with with the Brian Brian Flory situation. And maybe yes. there is more. He's certainly certain <clears> things about Stephen Ross of of the Dolphins, so we will see that. We are about out of time, Randy. I didn't have much else on my list today, even though it's been a busy free agency period. I think we've gotten to most things. Was there? I think we did. Hopefully we haven't bored uh, our listeners to death with the breakdown of the running backs and tight ends, but it is the time of year when these draft lists and criterias and and critiques uh, are are a, a newsworthy item, I think, for the most part. Yep, and next week we'll do another position. Do you, do you have in the back of your mind what you want to do next week? We can tease. No, I haven't got that far yet. At some point we're going to have to talk about the quarterbacks, though. And we sure I have are. already done all that, all the, all the film on that, so we could make it. A let's do the quarterbacks week. next week. Yeah, well, let's good. let's do the quarterbacks next week. I think that's that'll be of great interest. And uh, appreciate your work on that. Appreciate everybody listening. I'm Mike Sando, senior writer from the Athletic. You can find me on Twitter at Sando NFL. You can find Randy Mueller not only on Twitter at Randy Mueller underscore. You can find him at MuellerFootball.com. Thanks, everyone. This was the Athletic Football Show.